0: Please (laughs) take your Bibles, the uh, Pew Bibles in front of you, and turn to 1056, or no, excuse me, 1057. And uh, that's our text for today. And uh, I think it's beneficial if you're not in the habit of following along, checking to make sure that the preacher's not making things up or that he's not misrepresenting the scriptures. Uh, it's, it's your privilege, it's our privilege and our responsibility to own the scriptures for ourselves and look and, and, and do like the Bereans who had a better way. They, they searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. <clears throat> Yesterday I attended a funeral uh, of a childhood uh, friend, high school associate friend through the early years of our life his brother and two sisters and their mother and father uh, looked after Vivian pretty much uh, when we were a young couple starting our families and uh, in the uh, at the funeral yesterday one of the texts that they read that had been underlined in his Bible he had had cancer died of cancer was from Psalm 49 and I just wanted it really touched me to know that my brother in the Lord had underlined this. And I rejoiced and shed tears of joy that he knew the Lord, that he was prepared, that he is, though absent from the body, he is present with the Lord. But it says in verse 15, and the whole chapter deals with death, the death of the wicked, the death of the rich. Death is inevitable, as was pointed out so uh, poignantly yesterday. But this verse stuck out in my mind. It says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of the grave. He will ransom me from the consequences of sin, which is death. First in Adam, and then as he has bequeathed it to us. But what really, bless my soul, is his last word. The comfort in knowing, he says, for he will re see me. As longing, as much as we in our attachment to this world can long to see the face of Jesus, He longs to see us and have us with Himself. That was His prayer. Uh, Before He goes to the cross, He prays to His Father and He says, I would that they would be with me that where I am, that they might see my glory. In our uh, call to worship, I don't know if you noticed I chose Psalm 61 because, I mean, Isaiah 61 because I thought it fit along with what, where we are today. The reason that Jesus came was not only <clears throat> to redeem us from sin, but it was to restore us through that redemption to a right relationship with Him. Christians also often say, you'll hear Him." I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. We do have a relationship. Everybody does, either good or bad with Christ. But we long for that day when He will receive us unto Himself. But the very reason that He gives is found <clears throat> in the, at the end of verse 3 is for His glory. And certainly this morning... All of this psalm and uh, in the Scriptures, and I'll, I'll hit that again in just a minute, speak about Jesus. But we who have been born of His Spirit have been baptized into His body. Paul writes in Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Him. He has already received us to Himself through the Spirit, and we are in Christ Jesus. And the scriptures teach that we are joint heirs with Christ. We will reign with him. That which he has, he bestows upon us as his children, as his brothers and sisters. And there's a tremendous comfort. And not only an comfort, but an encouragement. And it should be a, uh, an encouragement to us as we go through the, the week. That already, right now, in portion, he has given to us so, so much. As i prepared, I couldn't help but think back to Chuck's sermon, as I think was already mentioned this morning, where he was preaching from Hebrews. And what stuck with me, I don't know if, if it stuck with you, everybody gets something different out of his sermon. What stuck with me is he said that God spoke, that he has a desire, it's his point, it's his purpose, to speak to us. Because it's through speaking to us that he creates, just as he created the heavens and the earth through his word. He creates life within us through the work of Christ and the application of the Holy Spirit. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through Jesus. This week I struggled, uh, uh, or this morning struggled, to just kind of finalize things and get them sorted out in my own mind. I expressed my frustration to Vivian, and she began to share something of what she had been reading in God's word, about the revelation of himself through his son. And again, my thoughts went back to Chuck and the revelation today in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what she was trying to communicate, but I know what I heard and what I took away from it. It's so often the case. She quoted where Jesus, God looks down from heaven, or you hear his voice from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the scriptures are about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text today, (laughs) though it's entitled, The Healing at the Pool of Bethesda, is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, the man who is lame is used as a platform to present the wonders of the restoring and the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly we will be restored in our bodies uh, though we face death. We share in his death and we share in his resurrection. But also spiritually we share in all of the benefits and the wonders that are his. So this morning we've come to hear him in the transfiguration. It changes a little bit. It adds a little bit to it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we hear the voice of God saying, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. That's why we've come this morning. I can't give you anything of my own. I can only, through God's grace and through his help and his mercy, point you to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The history, we looked a couple of weeks ago, and we said that this is God's story. It's a story of redemption, and I would add to that. It's a story of redemption, as we've mentioned, for the purpose of restoration a reuniting of God's creatures that were con- created in his own image to that place where they might enjoy, they might fellowship, they might enter into the communion <coughs> with the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus pointed this out when he pointed it to the scriptures. He says these, <coughs> these words, <is coughs> excuse me, on the road to Emmaus, there were those disciples whose eyes were holding. They didn't see what perhaps I hope we see this morning. And so Jesus said, he, <clears throat> then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Talking about the Old Testament. And he said, these, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the My, Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. They missed that. His own disciples So much more of the world around him. But his own disciples missed that point. When they came to the grave, he says, What are you looking for? He's not here. He has risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And he goes on to say, And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. John the evangelist wrote that there were many other signs that Jesus did, yet He chose the stories that echo the voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He promised the Christ. He is the son of God, my son. I so loved you that I gave him so that when you believe in him, you might not perish but have everlasting life. The the Bible is a compilation of many, many stories. You can think of the stories that perhaps you learn in Bible school or uh, in church somewhere in each week <clears throat> excuse me i need restoration <clears throat> <clears throat> we've we've covered many of those stories we covered the the event of the calling of the disciples the interaction with the followers that demanded a sign at the temple in Jerusalem an interaction with Nicodemus who came by night, an interaction with the disciples of John, and we've talked about the woman at the well, and an interaction with the nobleman who wanted his son healed. Today, in telling the story, we're speaking of the eternal son who took on flesh, used the elements of the physical world to point to that which is, is spiritual and eternal. He came to restore what God created and pronounce good from both sin and the consequences of sin. Now, let us look at our text. The ESV has entitled it, The Healing at the Pool on the Sabbath. I regret that I'm not a great storyteller. There are those who are and in the retelling of a story can bring it to life in a dramatic manner way. Uh, I was going to start this sermon today with the question, the proverbial question, which came first, the drama or the story, the story or the drama, the chicken or the egg, because I use as a paradigm in looking at scriptures in these texts that the scriptures are filled with stories of drama. Sometimes when we read them, we miss the drama that's there in that story. You could tell me a story this morning at some event that happened during your week. And I guarantee you, for a lot of you, it would be filled and packed with emotion and drama. We can't do that this morning. We don't have that ability. But at the end of it, we have the drama. And from the drama, from the story, there's some point when you tell me something or I tell you a story, recount some event. There's a point and a purpose that I want you to enter in, that I want empathy or I want sympathy or I want you to share in my anger or, or my joy. Whatever it is, there's a purpose that tries to draw us into the story. Well, the purpose here is that we might find our pleasure. You know, we, can, we, we often watch movies or television series or stories or read a novel or a book. Because we like to enter in and identify with the characters. It's a kind of a catharsis, it's, a, it's a vicarious. We don't go there, we don't do that. But, and we do it for entertainment. But our purpose this morning is not for the purpose of ent- entertainment, but for enlightenment. That having our eyes open and in seeing Jesus, our faith would be increased. Central to any story are the characters, the setting in which they react. Charles Dickens is one of my favorite writers, simply because he does such a great job of developing the characters. You feel like you know them. You either despise them or you identify with them. You would like to be like them. And that's that's the point and the purpose of developing a character. You have villains and you have heroes. There are only 18 verses recorded here, but in this short few verses can be fully fleshed out the setting and the characters by looking beyond this story. I hope to demonstrate that this morning. Like in a novel, we might enter a particular chapter with certain details already supplied. There, there's the backstory that we... The Old Testament is the backstory of the New Testament. What was promised there is being fulfilled in the person of Christ. And we really can't understand how he's functioning or why he's functioning without going to Genesis and, and tracing it through the Old Testament. Precept upon precept. So we build to that point. So it is here the whole of the Old Testament has been leading us to this point in time and space. And as we read it together, we must read between the lines. And I hope to help us do that without straying too far from the text this morning. So let us begin, and I think it would be helpful again that you would read along in your Bibles. I thought about maybe just asking, wanting to read in the next verse to have you engaged in the text. But let's do it together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethsaida, or Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, in these three verses, it's packed, and the writer, I'm sure the audience Perhaps many had been to Jerusalem. Uh, When we were in Israel in uh, 85, 86, we went to the sheep gate. We went around the city. I walked around the city, and you could see each of the ten gates. But I want us to take and break this down a little bit and see what's going on in the details. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What are we to make of that? The commentators are all over the place, and really it doesn't tell us which feast. So if you were investigating or you were reading this and you were studying this for yourself, you should ask the question, why doesn't it mention the feast? In other texts, it mentions the feast. Maybe it's Passover or Tabernacles or so on. And I would suggest to you is that that feast and in those pericopes, in those narratives, there's some connection that the mentioning the feast Uh, plays into it. But what we do know is that Jerusalem was, and the temple itself, was a place where Jews, it was a focal point of their worship. They would come, the men, when they could, they should come and gather with the congregation in corporate worship at the temple mount. They would bring their animal sacrifices and whatever they would do and go through the whole pageant and ritual of worship, which pointed, as we know, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The particular feast is not mentioned, I say, but what is important, I think, is that Jesus, as a Jew, lived like the other Jews. And he would come at feast time to the temple to be with the congregation of Israel. Now, John gives us three bits of information, and I would like to look for perhaps a fuller meaning. First of all... <clears throat> They are named the gate, the pool, and then there are five unnamed porches. So what's significant? We know that in the scriptures, names are important. When a child was born, Esau, anybody know what Esau, why they named him Esau, what it means? It means hairy, red and hairy. Uh, anybody know what Seth means, the name Seth? It was a substitute. Cain uh, killed Abel, and, and God given a, gave a substitute. And so you go. Jacob, everybody knows what Jacob means, right? He was a trickster. He was a supplanter. In other words, the point is that names have significance. Well, the Sheep Gate, what do you think happened at the Sheep Gate? That's where the sheep came in. And why did the sheep come in to is- to the, to the, into Jerusalem? And the sheep gate is placed at the most northern part of the walled city. And it's through the sheep gate that the sheep would come in and enter into the temple mount for the purpose of sacrifice. Can't prove this. I like the sounds of it. like the idea of it. But one commentator said that he believed, not being dogmatic, that Jesus most often, except for one occasion, when he would come into the city, would come through the sheep gate. Why? What's the connection? What's the connection I'm trying to make? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And there was a pool, in the, uh, and the pool was called Bethesda or Beit Chethed. If you go back to the original, Beit is house. And hathid is a mercy and the grace of God. It was a house, this pool was named a house of mercy. So you have sacrificial lambs coming in. You have a pool, and many believe that it was there that the animals were cleansed before they were sacrificed. It was all part and parcel of a way that men separated by sin from God could enter into a relationship with him through grace and mercy. Under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the sheep gate was restored in a very unique way. One, the families, different tribes were given different gates to rebuild. This one was rebuilt by the high priest in the priestly order. It's the only gate that was consecrated or declared holy. It was set apart, and I believe we can trace. this is not coincidental. Uh, It's no coincidence that Jesus went, must needs go through Samaria. It's not a coincidence that Jesus shows up and he finds this man at the pool or any of the incidences, but it's purposed, it's planned. There's not a leaf that falls, a sparrow that falls, but what God does not have is a providential hand in it for his purposes. So we have the uh, the beset of this pool And then we have these five colonnades constructed perhaps for uh, shelter for those who would come here uh, for the event that's at hand. Now, I don't have time to go into all of the numerology and all of the representations of what five stand for. I will mention this uh, simply because I thought it was really fascinating and maybe served to prove a point that when Joseph received his brothers, and he gave them food. He gave uh, his, his blood brother Benjamin five times as much. And when he gave them raiment, he gave them five times as much. Just uh, something of interest. Okay, so around this pool, we have, we've read, there lay a multitude. If you want to trace the word multitude, you're going to find that the multitudes were always following Christ. And so we get this picture that there's a, a large group of people, and I think this is very significant in the story, as we will see. It says in the ESV, there were invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I like what the King James uses. It says instead of, of uh, invalids, it says they were impotent. And then he goes, the King James also uses blind or halt instead of lame and withered instead of paralyzed. And I think the picture and the image that we see here is in the multitude that Israel itself, and the man in particular, was impotent, though they had the law, they had the promises, they had the prophets, they had the Psalms, but in and of themselves, they were impotent to do anything to meet their greatest need. First of all, they were blind. They blind leading the blind, the Pharisees. And they could not see. The greatest blindness is when a person can't see their own need. Because if you don't see your need, then you don't have a need for a Savior. You can't see the necessity of a Savior. So spiritually, Christ, when he came through the preaching of the gospel, is open blind eyes. And if you're blind, leading the blind, where do you end up? You end up in the ditch in tragedy. You don't know how to walk. And of course, the scripture is replete in the New Testament about walking. You remember Peter in in Galatia, (coughs) Galatia, when the Judaizers came down, he backed off from those he was having fellowship with who were uncircumcised. And Paul confronts him. He says, you are not walking according to the truth of the gospel. John in his epistle says that we are to walk in the truth. I emphasize this. We need to have our eyes on the scriptures, our eyes focused on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, so that we might know how we are to walk. Walk and walking in truth, in spite of what we believe in our contemporary Christian church, is an expectation. <clears throat> I won't get on my hobby horse about, well, we all sin. It's kind of a put off. Well, there's no expectation that we can do anything because we're just in this treadmill of sin and sin and sin and sin. Yes, we are. We sin. I sin daily. But we have a Savior who has liberated us and we are no longer bound by sin. But we have the freedom and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit to carry us along so that we might know how to walk. And then it talks about the fact that he was it blind. Lame, halt, <clears throat> and then paralyzed. We're going to talk, we're going to see a man who was paralyzed. His hand was withered, it was drawn up. <clears throat> what, is, what is that picture? That picture is the fact that you can't work. So if you reverse it, you can't work if you're paralyzed, and you can't work if you're not walking in the Spirit, and you can't walk in the Spirit if you can't see the truth of the gospel and the grace that God provides in his son. Israel was spiritually blind, as we know. And this man is going to demonstrate this also. Now we've got a few more minutes here to, to think this through together. What can we read and find in the scriptures without violating the text itself? Now the story shifts from the multitudes in this general condition, and singles out a particular person and deals with him. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time and said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus is always asking questions. It's not to gain information, but it's to impart to open the eyes, to get people to think. If I ask you a question, you've got to stop and think. What am I asking? And then you've got to think about the answer you're going to give. So he asked him if he wanted to be healed. It almost seems absurd. I've been here for 38 years in front of this pool. You know, if he was sarcastic and it doesn't put it there. I mean, what was going through his mind? What do you think I'm doing here? But Jesus was going to demonstrate something to him. What he didn't know is that he was standing before the Prince of Life, the Creator, the light of the world, and in him is life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he didn't recognize that he who the Old Testament had promised was there with healing in his wings. We should note that out of the multitudes, Jesus cast his gaze on one man, knowing knowing that he had been there a long time. It was not that he didn't see the multitudes, but out of the masses of multitudes, he chose one in grace. I would suggest to you two doctrines are illustrated here. First, foreknowledge or knowledge. Always in the, uh, in the scriptures in reference to God and the Son, when it talks about knowing, it's not just gnosis about but it speaks of an intimacy. And you've we've, we've heard it in sermons before that it speaks of Adam knowing his wife. In the, in the uh, prophets it says that of all the nations, I know you. Of all the nations and the families, I know you. It's an electing. It's a special uh, foreknowledge of unconditional election. It's obvious that the man was at the pool a long time with the multitudes because he wanted to be healed. Jesus is just trying to demonstrate to him and draw him out the helplessness of his condition. Verse 7, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps in front of me. In doctrinal terms, we see the total. You're going to see where I'm going here. We have unconditional election already, and now we've got T. Not total depravity, but a total dependency. What what is total depravity, but utter helplessness to do anything in our reconciliation with God. Yes, he was dependent as we are dependent on another. We can't come on our own. He needed someone to help him, to intervene for him, to intercede for him, to carry him through. And of course, we have this in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh that he might enter into our condition and lift us through his death and through his righteousness unto himself. So with the author of life who comes with healing in his wings, the lame man looks continually to the pool. Just a warning for us. We have the truth. We have the Holy Spirit. We have each other, the body of Christ. We should not look to ourselves or to, to the world for only that which God can give. So Jesus speaks to him. He says, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. After giving a general call or a question, do you want to be healed? I would suggest to you <clears throat> that we pick up the third letter of the uh, an acronym, TULIP, which we know is irresistible grace. I like what some of our uh, brothers use when they say effectual grace. It it accomplishes its purpose. And that's what irresistible is. It's not a forcing from without, but it's a a drawing from within by the giving of the Holy Spirit and bringing to life in our minds or bringing us to life in the gospel and what Christ has done for us. Jesus was initiating Not responding to faith. The man didn't even know who he was. He didn't know his abilities. He was still looking at the pool. He was responding to faith. Faith is gifted to one who has been liberated from death and corruption to life. When Jesus speaks effectually, obedience occurs. A response is effected in the individual. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed... It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful you to take up your bed. What do you see here? You see a man who's been there for 38 years. They had to have noticed him before. How heartless, how uncompassionate, no mercy, no sympathy. Instead of entering into the joy of this man being healed, they were taking their misinterpretation, misapplication of the gracious giving of the law, to establish a righteousness of their own and actually to condemn this man. Well, he simply says, the man said, get up, take up your bed and walk. I got up and took my bed and walked. They wanted to know who he was. They asked him, "Who who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Their interest moves from the man actually breaking the law to the one who they felt who had instigated and enabled the breaking of the law. Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. More evidence that Jesus, and he's done this several times, he does this several times in other healings. If I'm not mistaken, he does it with the man with the withered hand. And he also does it with the man who was blind from birth. He heals, and then he kind of leaves them on their own, but in this story and in those stories, he comes back. He He picks up what he initiated and he completes it, which is hope for us. He that has begun a good work in us will, will absolutely, definitively, without a shadow of a doubt, complete what he's begun in us. It is the creative word of God at work. Paul puts it this way, "...for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus." just as he spoke the lights in the the earth was what without form and void it was in complete darkness and god said let there be light and there was light and he has done the same thing subtly perhaps you may not even remember you may not know how but at some point if you have your faith in the person of the lord jesus christ the holy spirit came to you and in the proclamation of the gospel whether you heard it read it however it came to you he created life within and opened eyes to see. This is true. All you have to do is walk up to your neighbor and you can see the same, even in the same family, oftentimes you have a brother and a brother. One believes and one doesn't. Is one more intelligent, smarter, gifted? No. God's grace and mercy gifts us with faith and creates life within. Verse 13 Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn there for a crowd. More evidence that the power, Jesus' power, was not contingent on the man knowing who he was. God's sovereign grace is independent. It's circles I travel, they called it God's free, sovereign grace. Emphasis was on free and sovereign it was free because he was sovereign he has omnipotent power he's totally free to do according to his and act according to his nature which is perfect and holy and righteous and loving and kind it is <clears throat> after jesus found him in the temple perhaps the man had gone there to the t- why would he go to the temple why did he find him in the temple you would expect the man to go to where God meets with people to give thanks for his healing. I don't know what he said when he got there. He said, I don't know who this man is. But he said, stand up and walk. Maybe he thought back to the promises of Isaiah 61 that there would be one who would come and who would restore that which was corrupted, that which had been defiled. We don't know. What we do see is, one, Jesus healing without was not only instant, but it was perpetual. Oh, excuse me, I missed a verse. After Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, See, you are well. man standing there walking carried his mat. This is a permanent, perpetual condition. Jesus doesn't heal halfway. He doesn't save halfway and then leave the rest up to you. That's not what it's saying here. And We'll explore that just a bit. Application is that Jesus came to you through the gospel, spoke life and faith, but his work is not finished. He is sanctifying us. He has set us apart in Christ Jesus, but now in a very practical way, day by day, even this morning, as we come here together, he is renewing our minds. We're no longer to be conformed to this world, but we are being transformed through the preaching of the gospel as we have as we have heard it over the last uh, several weeks. Some believe that the man's lameness was due to either an initial sin or an ongoing sin. We know from the healing of the blind man from birth that it was not his sin nor the sin of his parents, but it was for the glory of God. What we do know in this admonition, in this warning where he's addressing sin, that he who had been physically healed needed to put his faith and his confidence in the one who had healed him for spiritual healing. The consequences for unbelief or rejecting the person of Lord Jesus Christ has eternal consequences. So we have sin. We have, we have uh, unconditional election. We have uh, total dependency or depravity of man. We have... irresistible grace effectual grace I like the term that some of our Baptist friends use it's called particular redemption or definite atonement in other words where it's not limited in its power it's not limited in its effectualness but it is effectual where it is particularly applied to those who God has foreknown, chosen, and called. And then he comes back, and there's the perseverance of the saints that we are to walk, as we've already said. We are to talk. We are to see. We are to grow. We are to build ourselves up in the body of Christ for the praise of his glory. That's what I like of that call to worship. I don't know if you noticed, but it ends up right there, that last phrase for his glory. So, they're upset because he's violated the Sabbath. What is is the prohibition of the Sabbath? You're not to work. So, Jesus doesn't hear, in this particular verse, he doesn't engage him initially with uh, saying, yeah, you're right, he shouldn't be carrying his mat, or he doesn't explain, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, all that. what, What does he say? I, my Father works... Let me, let me read it, I'm going to have it, okay. My, <clears throat> my father is working until now, and I am working. They moved from persecution, which the word means in our lingo today, we would say they harassed him. They weren't necessarily, you, you go from harassment to shutting him up completely through death. And so they were upset with him for breaking the Sabbath, not keeping the Sabbath, which he did. He was working as His Father works. Do you know we're working this morning? You may not feel like you're working, but I'm working. The the Jews asked Jesus in chapter 8, we'll get there, says, what is the work of God that we might do it? And His answer is, the work of God is that you believe on Him who He has sent. That's the initial work. Jesus was sent into the world to redeem, and then He sends out His disciples. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. We've talked about it in our hymns, in, 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 our, uh, in the message today, that we are, to, we are to be co-laborers with Christ in the work of spreading the gospel. This was why, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In the Lord's will, we'll flesh that out because the, almost the rest of the chapter is dealing With this, in spite of what the Jehovah's Witnesses would tell you, the Unitarian Pentecostals, their God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I don't see how they can get around Jesus' claim to be one with the Father. The Jews understood it. Uh, In the first century, they understood what Jesus was claiming and they sought to kill him. Well, they did. Through the instrument of the Romans but that wasn't a slip up on God's part. That's why he came into the world, to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he's come this morning to us and we're to hear his voice. Hear it again. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. There's power in the blood, the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he can ransom us not only from the grave but from eternal punishment and receive us unto himself let's pray father again we thank you for this time together we pray that you would seal these words up in our heart that they would be used to conform us more and more to the image of your son so that as we go out this morning as people see us they see us as disciples first of all perhaps loving one another enjoying the fellowship that only christians can have and believers can have and that we might also be ready to give the reason for the hope, the expectation the desires, Enthrall us, Lord. May we glorify you and enjoy you and find our pleasure in you. We ask this to be bestowed upon us in your grace. In Christ's name, amen.